Hey guys, welcome back to the show. Today we're going to be talking about Julian Assange since he's in the news again after being arrested on April 11th. And since he was taken into custody, it seems like everybody has had something to say about Julian Assange. Social media and the news were just full of hot takes like, thank goodness, he's an enemy of the state, lock him up. Or conversely, oh no, this is an assault on freedom of speech and freedom of the press, how could this happen? And you know what, that diversity of viewpoints doesn't bother me. Assange is a public figure in politics. Of course, opinion on him is going to be split, but what bothered me was how little information people seem to be actually basing their opinions off of. It seems to me that for a lot of people, though of course not everyone, how they view Assange is really dependent on what tribe they belong to, like whether they're on the left or the right, or whether they're pro or anti-establishment. Not so much what his actual work has been or what the actual charges against him are. So in this video, what we're going to try to do is push aside the partisanship and the politics and try to look at the facts to answer the question, is Julian Assange a hero or a villain? And trust me, the answer is complicated. And to do that, we're going to start at the beginning and work our way forward to the current charges. So there's going to be a lot of information coming at you. Be prepared. And I know that right now, especially Assange and WikiLeaks are such polarizing topics, but please try to approach this video with an open mind because I think there's a lot of information here that people just don't know about. So with that being said, let's get started. In case you didn't know, Julian Assange is an Australian-born computer programmer who founded WikiLeaks in 2006. And according to WikiLeaks itself, the site is a multinational media organization and associated library. It specializes in the analysis and publication of large data sets of censored or otherwise restricted official materials involving war, spying, and corruption. It has so far published more than 10 million documents and associated analyses. Although it started in 2006, WikiLeaks didn't really become a household name or gain a lot of international attention until 2010. And that's due to a series of leaks that was provided to them by Chelsea Manning, then Bradley Manning. Even though officially WikiLeaks still has not confirmed that Manning was their source, but we'll get to that later. A video leaked by Manning, which was titled Collateral Murder, and showed U.S. forces killing around 18 people, including two journalists, is probably one of the first things published by WikiLeaks that really went viral. I'm talking millions and millions of views. Additionally, the leaks from Manning also included war logs from Afghanistan and Iraq, about 250,000 diplomatic cables, as well as files from Guantanamo Bay. Since then, some of the biggest WikiLeaks projects have included the release of the Sony hacked emails that they published in 2015. And although that didn't really make a lot of news in the political realm, in the entertainment industry, it was a very big deal. Plus, in 2016, leading up to the presidential election, WikiLeaks also published the infamous DNC and Podesta emails. From the very start, the reception to Wik WikiLeaks and Assange himself has been mixed, shall we say. Some people have praised the organization for trying to further transparency, whereas others have perhaps more critically labeled the release of state secrets as um, treason. Personally, I fall on the side of transparency. I think that if the government or state officials are doing something wrong, corrupt, unethical, whatever it may be, people have a right to know nobody should be above the law. If you agree with any of that, then you're more likely to think that Assange and WikiLeaks are pretty cool guys. But in response to that, some people have asserted that fine, even if you want further transparency, indiscriminately releasing hundreds of thousands of documents about military intelligence and diplomacy 
probably isn't the best way to do that. It's been argued that because of WikiLeaks, military assets, operations, and diplomatic relations have been compromised. And while that's not enough for me to label WikiLeaks a flat-out bad actor, I do think those are points that should be addressed. Regarding diplomacy, if state officials are doing or saying things that they want to keep secret because they're afraid of how it might reflect badly upon them, I think it's arguable that the real strain on diplomatic relations comes from the actors themselves, not the person merely revealing the actions. That's just my perspective as someone who favors transparency. Like, don't be mad that it's been revealed how crappy you are be less crappy. With that being said though, I do believe that it would be naive to think that states cannot have any secrets at all, especially when it comes to military intelligence. Since we're fighting real-life enemies out there, I do think it's safe to say that it would leave us at a considerable disadvantage if they were to somehow find out every little thing about our military operations. What we know, where we are, who we're working with, who we're watching, I do think that there are some things out there that should be on a need-to-know basis. And so I do think it's a fair criticism to say that at times Julian Assange and WikiLeaks have been irresponsible with the data they've chosen to release. For example, in 2010 to release the Manning leaks, WikiLeaks partnered up with mainstream media outlets, specifically the New York Times, The Guardian, and Der Spiegel. Tensions arose though, since even though they were committed to publishing the leaks, the journalists that Assange contacted still felt that at least some redactions needed to happen to protect the people who were named in the documents. In their coverage, the papers decided that they would black out the names of any civilian informants working for the U.S. military. But Assange had a different idea for his WikiLeaks website. One evening, just days before publication, they confronted him over dinner. Julian, whose project was to publish the entire data set, was very reluctant to delete those names, to redact them. We said, Julian, we, we've got to do something about these redactions. We really have got to. And he said, these people were collaborators, informants. Uh, they deserved to die. And there was a sort of silence fell around the table. The other journalists who were involved from all three news organisations were also raising the issue with him and getting the same answer. Part of what was steering his judgement was his origins as a hacker, a computer hacker, where there's a very purist ideology that all information should be accessible to everybody. Ultimately though, a few days before the release of the first 90,000 documents, Assange did end up agreeing to some redactions as well as to withholding the most sensitive files. But still, after the leaks were published, according to some human rights groups, not enough had been done to protect the identities of people listed in the documents. As the Register reported in August of 2010, WikiLeaks faces criticism from human rights groups over its publishing of the names of intelligence sources in Afghanistan. Organizations including Amnesty International wrote to the site's spokesman Julian Assange urging better redaction of secret files, both already public and planned to be released, according to the Wall Street Journal. We have seen the negative, sometimes deadly ramifications for those Afghans identified as working for or sympathizing with international forces, the groups wrote. We strongly urge your volunteers and staff to analyze all documents to ensure that those containing identifying information are taken down or redacted. The email to Assange was co-signed by the Campaign for Innocent Victims in Conflict, the Open Society Institute, Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission, and the International Crisis Group. Assange reportedly responded by asking the groups what they would do to help. An amnesty official suggested a conference call to discuss collaboration, but was rebuffed. So that's one perspective of how the first batch of the Mannings leaks went, but Assange himself has always flatly denied the idea that his leaks are harming anyone or that the site isn't doing enough to protect people's identities. The question of harm minimization, that you were, in your initial conversations, 
um, not concerned. That was absolutely false. And this is a typical rhetorical trick. By the why, why does this keep coming up? Why are there okay, people explain, out there I'll that explain, are saying I'll that explain. you didn't care if informants were killed? It's absolutely false. But you reject the idea or the allegation um, are completely, that, you, completely that you ever resisted, uh, that you were into just releasing the names. It's completely false. We have a harm minimization procedure. A harm minimization procedure is that we don't want innocent people who have a decent chance of being hurt to be hurt. And to Assange's credit on this point, I think it is important to mention that later on in that same year, in 2010, when WikiLeaks was getting ready to release a series of the diplomatic cables, somehow a third party got a hold of the password to the unredacted documents, meaning that those files would soon be circulating all around the net in their entirety for everybody to see. Wanting to warn the government ahead of time so they could minimize fallout, Julian Assange did try to contact the former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's office, though he was unsuccessful. More details other than the entire unredacted cable set is about to go on the internet. I mean, literally, it's about to happen. I don't understand why you are not seeing the urgency in this. G'day, Chad. This is, is Julian Assange. Uh, to try to make it clear, we don't have a problem, you have a problem. And we are trying to help you solve your problem because we are indirectly connected to your problem. I would like to speak to the most senior person available who can execute an action quickly to send someone to location here uh, in Norfolk. Credit where it's due on that, but the last thing I'm going to say about this is even Edward Snowden, who is clearly no fan of state secrets, has criticized WikiLeaks for failing to protect sensitive information. In 2016, as Business Insider wrote, National Security Agency contractor turned whistleblower Edward Snowden chided WikiLeaks on Thursday for its indiscriminate approach to leaking information, barely a week after the anti-secrecy organization published 20,000 emails that were obtained in a hacking from the Democratic National Committee. As Snowden tweeted out, Democratizing information has never been more vital, and WikiLeaks has helped, but their hostility to even modest curation is a mistake. The WikiLeaks account responded to Snowden, saying, Opportunism won't earn you a pardon from Clinton, and curation is not censorship of ruling party cash flows. Business Insider continued that WikiLeaks has attracted harsh criticism for failing to curate the information it leaks based on what is legitimately in the public's interest. The organization has also made it a policy not to redact sensitive personal information that may be contained in the documents it exposes. In the case of the DNC emails, I think the sensitive data people were most worried about was the financial information of donors. But in any case, I think it's important to remember here that two things can be true. One, that WikiLeaks does a lot of good work, especially exposing corruption, and transparency should be encouraged. And two, journalistic ethics do require knowing what to release and what not to release, and at times, WikiLeaks has failed at this discernment. Depending on the information they contain, leaks can either be in the public's best interest or an invasion of personal privacy and perhaps even personal safety. And I think WikiLeaks' blasé attitude toward people's privacy is especially ironic considering their hardline stance toward protecting their sources' anonymity. To this day, WikiLeaks refuses to confirm Chelsea Manning was their source, even though she says, yeah, it was me. The difficulty of our position is that our technology does not permit us to understand whether someone is one of our sources or not because the best way to keep a secret is to never have it. Uh, we don't have sources that we know about. And I had never heard the name Bradley Manning before. And sure, considering the legal situation around that, they may, out of self-interest, trying to be distancing themselves a little bit, but 
the point still stands. As an organization, when it comes to its site, its staff, its data, its sources, WikiLeaks prizes anonymity and security and privacy. And I just wish that they would extend those same courtesies to the regular everyday people who are affected by their leaks. And again, I still support WikiLeaks overall. It's just that, as Uncle Ben likes to say each time there's a new Spider-Man reboot, with great power comes great responsibility. So those are the ethical issues surrounding Julian Assange, but now I would like to move us into the criminal allegations. Because whether we support Assange morally or not is kind of a different question than whether he's in the right legally. Now, Julian Assange is a convicted hacker. Way back in 1994, he was charged with, pled guilty to, and was convicted of hacking and related crimes in Australia. He had hacked into this telecommunication company's master terminal, and ultimately, he didn't end up going to jail and just had to pay a fine. The court didn't view him as having any malicious intent with his hacking. But more recently than that, I'm sure a lot of us by now have maybe forgotten exactly what were the events that led to Julian Assange being holed up in an Ecuadorian embassy in London for like seven years? Well, it began nine years ago. According to Rolling Stone, back in 2010, the International Public Prosecution Office in Gothenburg, Sweden, issued an arrest warrant for Assange after two women came forward with allegations of sexual misconduct. The women, who knew each other and Assange, had similar stories of encounters that began consensually but allegedly devolved into coercive and even violent experiences. Swedish police wanted to question the WikiLeaks founder on suspicion of rape, sexual misconduct, and unlawful coercion stemming from the incidents with the women who were referred to by the initials AA and SW. A warrant was eventually issued detailing four alleged offenses. Assange has denied any criminal wrongdoing, though according to police documents reviewed by The Guardian, he did admit to having sex with one of the women. It is with these sexual misconduct allegations that the legal issues surrounding Julian Assange really started. And regarding whether the man is a hero or a villain, due to the timing of the allegations plus the lack of hard evidence, it kind of seems like the accusations might be politically motivated. In any case, though, after being questioned by police, Julian Assange ended up fleeing to the UK the same day his arrest warrant was issued. So for the next two years, until 2012, Assange fought extradition to go back to Sweden. But when British courts eventually ruled that he would have to go back, that's when he sought asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy, where he remained for seven long years until this past Thursday. So what's happening right now, and gosh, it's been quite the journey to get here, is that on April 11th, Ecuador withdrew its political asylum for Julian Assange, meaning that the UK was free to come in and arrest him, which they did. He was arrested for failing to surrender to court since all those years ago when he was supposed to be extradited, he just never showed up. And after appearing before a judge, he was found guilty of skipping bail. But what's interesting to note here, and if not interesting, then maybe relevant is a better word, is that those sexual misconduct charges from Sweden, i.e. the whole reason why he was supposed to be extradited and appear before court in the UK and kind of why the UK has him in custody now, those charges were actually dropped back in 2017, to which some of you guys might be wondering, so why did the UK have to arrest him in the first place if the charges were dropped? Even though the Swedish charges against him were dropped two years ago, what he did in 2012 in the UK failing to surrender to court that is still a crime and he did break British law. And furthermore, the Swedish charges against him weren't dropped because they now believe he's innocent or something like that. They were dropped because police didn't believe that they could continue the investigation with him being holed up in an Ecuadorian embassy. But now that Assange is out of the embassy, one of the alleged victims is asking that the case be reopened and it's looking like it might be. And this brings us to the big juicy part of the story, what I'm sure you've all been waiting for, and that's what Uncle Sam plans to do with Assange 
now that he's out. You see, two hours after the UK arrested him, Assange was further arrested, which I think is legalese for super duper mega ultra you ain't seen freedom anytime soon arrested on behalf of the US. And it is this arrest and potential extradition to the United States that has people freaking out and saying that freedom of the press is being violated. And while I do think it's egregious that someone would be locked up just for publishing the truth, I've gotta say, at least on paper, that's not what's happening here. The US charges against Assange, like all the other charges against him incidentally, are not related to publishing information. To which I know some of you guys are gonna say, come on, he didn't actually do any of the things he's accused of and they know that. They're just making up charges so they can lock him behind bars and violate freedom of the press without making it look like they're violating freedom of the press. I understand that line of thinking and I totally agree that that's probably what's happening with the Swedish charges. For the British charges, I mean, he did actually skip bail like that happened, but he probably only did that because he didn't think he would get a fair trial against trumped up charges by people who are just trying to put him away because of his work. Harder call there. And with the American charges, things are even more complicated. And actually, that's what frustrated me so much on Thursday after Assange was arrested. So many people were giving their takes on Assange without actually looking at the indictment or the evidence. So that's what we're going to do now. The indictment, which you can find in its entirety online, is seven pages, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but one of the most important parts of it reads that on or about March 8, 2010, Assange agreed to assist Manning in cracking a password stored on United States Department of Defense computers connected to the Secret Internet Protocol Network, a United States government network used for classified documents and communications. That statement makes it very clear that the allegations against Assange go well beyond just publishing information. He's being accused of conspiracy to hack into a government network, which is very illegal and not at all covered by the First Amendment. Now, when reporting on this, I have noticed that a lot of pro-Assange sources have chosen to focus on a paragraph that states, On March 8, 2010, before entering the password cracking agreement, Manning told Assange that she was throwing everything she had on JTF Gitmo at Assange now. Manning also said, After this upload, that's all I really have got left. To which Assange replied, Curious eyes never run dry in my experience. A lot of people are really downplaying or ignoring entirely the password hacking part of the agreement and really playing up the curious eyes never run dry part of the indictment. A lot of people are saying that encouraging your source to bring you more information is something any journalist would do, so that shouldn't count as conspiracy to commit hacking in and of itself. And they're right, it absolutely shouldn't, but that's really not what the indictment is saying. Encouraging your source to bring you more information is not conspiracy to commit hacking. But encouraging your source to bring you more information and then later agreeing to and attempting to crack a password in order to obtain more documents that kind of sounds like it would be conspiracy to commit hacking. To which other people are also saying, but we don't even know if they were successful. It doesn't sound like they were, so who cares? Thing with that, though, is attempting to commit a federal crime is is still illegal. That's where the conspiracy part comes in. If you're a supporter of Assange, though, it may comfort you to know that conspiracy to commit hacking is really, in terms of sentencing, not the worst crime there is. As The Verge writes, currently the only charge Assange faces is one count of conspiracy to commit computer intrusion. The maximum penalty for the violation is five years in prison, but the government could bring additional charges against Assange at a later date. So unless more charges are brought against him, which frankly is pretty likely, Assange could be released unless 
less than five years, especially if he takes a plea agreement, which a lot of people are suspecting he will be offered in exchange for information about who gave him the DNC leaks. So in my opinion, as it stands right now, this indictment is not about freedom of the press. This is about whether or not Julian Assange did agree to help Manning crack that password. Even if you do believe that the charges are just trumped up to try and suppress Assange, the best way to combat that is still to prove that Assange did not agree to help crack that password. Because as much as I love freedom of the press, it needs to be illegal to attempt to hack into government computers, right? Like you guys, we all understand that, right? Like that can't be something that's allowed. Just for security can happen. So did Assange attempt to help Manning crack a password? Well, let's look at the evidence. According to another part of the indictment, quote, on or about March 8, 2010, Manning provided Assange with part of a password stored on United States Department of Defense computers connected to the secret internet protocol network. And on or about March 10, 2010, Assange requested more information from Manning related to the password. Assange indicated that he had been trying to crack the password by stating that he had no luck so far. Hmm, very interesting. Now, the best that we can tell, those accusations stem from a chat log that was discovered on Manning's computer in 2010 when the Army seized it after she was first taken into custody. As Wired first reported in 2013, just before Thanksgiving, the Army posted to its Freedom of Information Act reading room a large tranche of documents from Chelsea Manning's court material, including an 88-megabyte zip file containing the prosecution's unclassified exhibits in the case. Buried in that file is Exhibit 123, a log of a chat that an Army forensics expert recovered from the unallocated space on Manning's computer. The chat is between Manning and a WikiLeaks contact the Army says is Julian Assange. The username Nobody, allegedly Manning, asks, any good at I am hashcracking? To which Nathaniel Frank, allegedly Assange, responds, yes. And also that we have rainbow tables for I am, which are used in hacking. Nobody then says, not even sure if that's the hash. I had to hex dump a SAM file since I don't have the system file. Nathaniel Frank responds, what makes you think it's I am? It's from a Sam. Nobody replies, yeah. Nathaniel Frank then says, passed it on to our IM guy. That exchange was on March 8th. And two days later, on the 10th, Nathaniel Frank follows up, any more hints about this IM hash? No luck so far. Now, to a layman like me, at least, it does kind of seem, based on those logs, that those two people we're working together to try to crack a password in order to gain access to a government computer. We don't yet know whether there's more evidence attached to this, but I think the main question right now is whether Nathaniel Frank was actually Julian Assange. The government says they're pretty sure, but remember, Assange denies having had any contact with Manning. Now, Manning has refused to testify in this case, so actually, as of right now, she is back in jail. And as The Guardian writes, Manning says she is refusing to testify because she objects to the secrecy of the grand jury process, and she already revealed everything she knows at her court-martial. The judge said she will remain jailed until she testifies or until the grand jury concludes its work. Aside from the fact that jailing someone because they refuse to testify seems pretty unconstitutional. Manning's previous statements do make it clear that she at least was under the impression that she was in fact communicating with Julian Assange. Side note, I know my videos aren't usually this long or this detailed, but I have a thing for true crime and just putting all of this together with this story. I kind of got into it. Do you guys remember exactly how it was that Chelsea Manning, then Bradley Manning, was first discovered by authorities? As Wired reported back in 2010, 22-year-old Army intelligence analyst Bradley Manning initiated a series of online chats with former hacker Adrian Lamo after a story on Lamo was published at Wired.com. The chats continued over several days, during which Manning claimed that he was responsible for leaking classified material to the whistleblower site WikiLeaks. Lamo tipped off the FBI and the Army about Manning's claims, and on May 26, Manning was seized 
seized by army authorities and put into pretrial detention in Kuwait. And you may be wondering, why on earth would anybody who was just part of one of the biggest leaks in military history confess that to a stranger that they had just met online a few days ago? By this point, Manning's mental health was in a very fragile state. Reading the chat, you can see that Manning at this point really just wants someone to talk to. She kind of unloads everything on Lamo. She explains that her boyfriend had just left her. She had had a bad childhood and from the sounds of it, just a rough life in general. And her gender dysphoria at this point was debilitating. And additionally, because of that, her job in the military was also in jeopardy. So with all that going on, plus the leaks weighing on her, honestly, I think Manning just kind of snapped. Whether you approve of what Manning did or not, reading that chat log and hearing about everything she was going through and seeing how emotionally vulnerable she was, especially with the knowledge that the person she was confessing this to would be the person who turned her in, you can't help but feel at least a little bit of sympathy for her. But her deteriorated mental health aside, what the chat logs also prove is that Manning definitely believed that she was in contact with Julian Assange. When she was first starting to reveal that she was involved with the leaks, Manning said, let's just say someone I know intimately well has been penetrating U.S. classified networks, mining data like the ones described, and been transferring that data from the classified networks over the air gap onto a commercial network computer, sorting the data, compressing it, encrypting it, and uploading it to a crazy white-haired Aussie who can't seem to stay in one country very long. To which Lamo asked, what are the particulars? And Manning replied, crazy white-haired dude equals Julian Assange. And later on, she also reveals that, quote, I mean, I'm a high-profile source, and I've developed a relationship with Assange, but I don't know much more than what he tells me, which is very little. It took me four months to confirm that the person I was communicating with was, in fact, Assange. There are other mentions of Assange in the chat log, and according to Manning, at one point, Assange even offered her a role at WikiLeaks. So ultimately, after all that, I do think this indictment against Assange is pretty legit. I don't approve of conspiracy to commit hacking, but that doesn't mean I think Assange is a total villain either. Assange has done a lot of good work with WikiLeaks, and I hope that in the not-too-distant future, he's able to continue that work. And I don't think he sexually abused anyone, and I don't think he deserved to spend seven years of his life holed up in an Ecuadorian embassy. And I would caution some of his more avid supporters against deifying him. Assange has made mistakes in releasing sensitive information, and it is looking like like he did break the law in regard to conspiracy. Does that mean I think he should be locked away forever? Absolutely not. He suffered more than enough. It's just he's neither as godlike or as evil as people make him out to be. But in any case, those are all my thoughts about the story of Julian Assange. Is he a hero or a villain or somewhere in between? As always, I would love to know your thoughts, but that's it for now. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll see you next time.